From Lawson Media, this is Building a Unicorn, the show exploring what it takes to build a big global business. I'm Christopher Lawson. COVID-19 has seen a huge number of people move towards working and learning from home. In just a matter of weeks, universities and schools converted their entire curriculums to online learning. And millions of people have been investing in improving themselves whilst in lockdown. Providing access to training is an important part of running a successful business. You need to provide opportunities for staff to upskill and improve themselves, which in turn will then benefit your company. And there are many platforms you could join to get access to courses. But keeping track of all those platforms and subsequent subscriptions can be challenging. But today's founder is part of a team that has made that process simple. Vu Tran is the Chief Growth Officer and co-founder of GoOne. GoOne is a subscription platform that helps businesses provide online training for their staff from a range of different sources. We're the world's largest platform for workplace learning. You can think of us as the Netflix or Spotify for workplace learning. Uh, We service over 2 million users worldwide across every single inhabited continent. We're working on Antarctica at the moment. Um, And at the end of the day, we're very proudly Australian-founded and headquartered startup. The thing about digitization of learning with online learning and throughout coronavirus, you know, since the outbreak, you've seen an uptake and become massive of online learning. Um, We've got a firm belief that giving people choice, well, actually, it's not about giving people choice. It's the fact that people are demanding choice when it comes to what they learn and who they learn from. But the the other side of it is diversity as well, which is incredibly important. So, you know, a typical startup, if I tell you that, where uh, Netflix aggregates movies under a single subscription, where Spotify aggregates uh, music under a single subscription. We aggregate training courses under a single subscription for workplaces. When we started and launched what our, what our Spotify for Learning is called Go One Premium, and when we launched, that had about 200 courses in it, right? So imagine Spotify having 200, course, 200 songs in it. But we got customers and we got some really early on. By the start of last year, that had about 5,000 courses. So that was in the space of about two years. We went from about 200 courses to 5,000. And I think as of last week, we just ticked over 70,000 courses. Vu grew up in Brisbane, Australia. His parents were refugees from Vietnam, and throughout his childhood, he watched as they both had their own entrepreneurial journeys. And that drive to own your own business and carve your own destiny started to rub off on Vu from an early age. I'm the child of Vietnamese refugees. And my parents came here in the late 70s, early 80s. And I didn't have to live through that because I was very lucky to be born here. But one of the really interesting things my dad said to me when I was probably, you know, just after high school finished, he said to me the Steve Jobs of his generation probably left Vietnam during the 70s and 80s. And I didn't really understood what he said when he said that comment to me as a kid. But growing up, not a single one of my relatives didn't own a business of some sort. I challenge you to find a Vietnamese person who hasn't owned a bakery, a restaurant, a convenience store, a sewing business, whatever you, whatever you want to look at. I challenge you to find one that hasn't owned a business of some sort. And so growing up as a kid, my parents always owned businesses. It was always a convenience store. Dad had a shop or mum had a sewing business or made curtains or whatever it is, right? 
So when it came to year 11 and 12, when all of our friends were getting jobs at Woolies and Coles, I actually wrote a business plan for Andrew, who's our CEO. And I said, hey, Andrew, let's start our own business. Let's build websites for companies. Now, this is two th- we graduated high school in 2006. So this was before Facebook, the iPhone, all this sort of stuff, right? So startups were not cool back then. We were the weird kids who decided to start their own business in high school as opposed to go out and get a real job. And we worked our backsides off for a good, you know, throughout half of year 11 and all of year 12 to um, build our, our website company where we would literally in the afternoon after school at three o'clock, go walk the main streets and go business, door-to-door businesses and try and flog them a website. Do you remember the first um, customer that you were able to get um, by going around? Yep. yep. 100%. It was... Uh, a firm which isn't around right now, so I can I can name them. It's called Local Labor. It was a labor hire firm, and we built them a full website with a custom CMS for five hundred bucks. <laughs> so at the end of the day, uh, I'm saying like a full bespoke CMS, and it's not bad for a bunch of kids in grade twelve. Um, I can tell you that for one and a half years' work, we finally cashed out some money at the end of year twelve. And we worked out that it was enough money to pay for our schoolies accommodation. So we worked out we got paid about 46 cents an hour. But we loved it. And the experience we got gave us a taste of being able to create what we did today. It allowed us to be able to have the hustle, to be able to build some great companies in the past and then go through the process of Y Combinator in 2015 and develop what we've got now. Vu's siblings were all in the medical field. So whilst he was testing the entrepreneurial waters with this web design business, as he finished school, he still felt the need to go and study medicine to become a doctor, something that he still does around his work with Go One. So my brothers and sisters are doctors. So for me, it was like, yeah, you go and do medicine. And it's like, yeah, I did. I did do that. But being in this t-shirt and being in our office and running a global team is really what I wanted to do. I, 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 I've always wanted to do like, and I think this is something that we all share as founders. We've always wanted to achieve something and put our mark on, on, you know, achieve something that we can hang our hat on. And don't get me wrong. I love being a GP. I still practice once a week, once a fortnight. I love my patients and you would never see me give that up. But I think the flip side of it is how do I also make a difference at scale? Um, you know, if, if I can kind of give you an example, I, I, I work in general practice in a very low socioeconomic part of the world. Uh, in, on part of sorry, part of Queensland, and so there's high rates of mental health issues, but also domestic violence. Now, each day I can maybe treat thirty to forty patients, um, but one of the projects that we rolled out last year and the year before was we put out domestic violence awareness training to two hundred and fifty thousand public servants in Queensland government. So you can see how that's a topic that's both very close to my heart, but also something that I can achieve at scale through what I do in Go One, which I may not be able to do. Um, through what I do as a general practitioner. And so I think for us, you know, that that's not something that I, as a year 11 and 12 student, I sat there and said, this is how I'm going to make a difference. But I always knew that I wanted to do something at scale. And um, so, uh, one of my teachers actually reminded me of the application I made to medical school in grade 12 and how it was about trying to make a difference at scale and that being a doctor does not necessarily mean about just treating patients, but using that knowledge to be able to make a difference to a large group of people. While in medical school, Fu was still working on the web design business that he started back in high school, and that soon morphed into a professional services business. 
And the fascinating thing about the journey of the team at Go One is that they've all been together from the beginning, working on their entrepreneurial efforts while also pursuing a more traditional career. You know, we started this company together, myself, Andrew and Chris. Chris Egland is, was in the year below us at high school. We've got all completely different backgrounds. Um, Andrew's background is an, as an economist. So, he's, he's probably the smartest person I'll get to know. And yes, I'm biased because he's my best, best mate. Um, but, you know, he's a Rhodes Scholar. You know, not many of us get to say that, we, we, you know, we've got a Rhodes Scholar working in our business, um, let alone as a CEO. You know, he's up there with the likes of Bill Clinton and Malcolm Turnbull and Tony Abbott as former Rhodes Scholars as well. So, he's our CEO. He's my best mate and probably the smartest person I'll get to know. And this is what I'm trying to tell you. I'm the schmuck of the group. Chris Aigland is our COO. He was in the year below us in high school. He's another one of our great mates. And his background is as a lawyer. And it sounds like a bad joke, doesn't it? But um, his background is as a lawyer. So he's uh, he, he's done everything. You know, when the Haiti the earthquake happened in Haiti in the 2000s, he founded a school bag program that sent, I think, something like 10,000 school bags to Haiti. Uh, then he became. Then he finished law school and became the uh, clerk to the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of South Africa. And then somewhere along the line, he had time to become the Youth Ambassador to the United Nations. And so he sent me a, twi- a tweet once where it was a picture of him addressing the UN and standing right in front of him was Leonardo DiCaprio talking about climate change and Chris was next up to talk at the podium. And my background is as a GP. So I'm a general practitioner by trade. Um, so I did medical school while we were running our business. And so all three of us have really diverse backgrounds, a lawyer, an economist, and a doctor. But the one thing that brings us all together is we love learning. And I don't mean that in terms of pieces of paper. I mean in terms of the power of what knowledge can do in terms of transforming countries, people, people's lives, um, and entire trajectories of what people and their families can actually achieve. So that's why we do what we do. That love of learning soon led Vu, Andrew and Chris to pivot their business. And after this short break, Go One is born. Around 2015, Vu, Chris and Andrew decided to reevaluate their business. They'd been able to grow their professional services business, helping companies implement products like Salesforce, and had a team of around 15 people. And they'd been doing this on the side while pursuing their careers. However, the team knew that they needed to make a change. So they made the decision to pivot, to change their business entirely and focus everything on learning. So we, we, we were able to divest ourselves of that business very, very quickly once we decided we wanted to focus on learning. And I should probably point out that learning was probably the smallest component of our business at that stage. We had built a learning product, but we had uh, it was by no means the, the largest component, at least from a cash perspective, in terms of what we were doing. So we really did take a gamble by really focusing on that. But we said, look, at the end of the day, we're young. We have the opportunity to be able to, you know, as I said to you before, we've got opportunities. We need to take them while they're in front of us. And so, you know, we, we, we made that choice to very quickly divest ourselves of the professional services uh, businesses we'd set up and really focus on something we enjoyed and go back to scratch. So, you know, we built up 
hundreds of customers and clients and, and built up this really great portfolio and, and did these really great projects. And we really, you know, in the course of probably months, even, you know, we, we then, we actually agreed as a team that we're really going to focus on this one thing. And the real defining moment of it was actually when we decided, you know what, let's divest ourselves of this and start from scratch and go through a Y Combinator process and see what happens. And that for me is really the start of our journey, you know, um, that sort of mid 2015 was really where go one, what you see today started from scratch. So you applied to YC, you, you got into um, the YC, YC batch um, and you're, you're international founders as well, which, um, you know, at the time, like 2015 was kind of like a rare um, thing for YC to include international founders. Um, so what, what was that process like um, for you guys? Like, did you have a fully formed idea about like what your business was going to be or was it just we're going to do something in learning? No, we, we definitely, so we went in with a learning management, with what would typically today be called a learning management system, of which we now understand there's over 500 out there. Um, but, you know, I, 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 looking back on it, I also understand that Y Combinator invests in founders, not business ideas. You know, one of our found, one of our, one of the partners who, who was our, one of our mentors, we had some really great mentors, but one of our, one of our mentors was Justin. Um, and Justin was, when he went into Y Combinator, he founded something called Justin TV and where he strapped a webcam to himself and played computer games all day and did stuff. And I don't know, I was sitting there going, why would Y Combinator invest in that? But you fast forward and he noticed that while he was playing computer games, his viewership went right up. So he and a few mates started a small thing called Twitch. And literally, I think it was a few months before we joined Y Combinator, he had just exited for $900 million. And that really pointed, he used that story to, to illustrate to us that they don't back the ideas, they back the people. Because you mentioned before pivoting, I think, you know, every startup and scale up pivots a thousand times throughout their lifetime, whether they're little micro pivots or big ones, we're doing it constantly. But that ability to pivot or that ability to change or that ability to adapt, whatever you want to call it, it comes down to the appetite and the willingness as well as the ability to innovate to be able to do it. And so, you know, we learned a lot from about ourselves in Y Combinator. It sounds like a real cliche, but it was. Um, and I think the second part that I came back to is that it opened our eyes and it raised the bar, right? We, went, we, we, we thought we were pretty smart and pretty good. And then we joined a batch of 50 other co-found, like other founders who we realized we were a tiny fish in a massive pond. But it also meant that it made us dream big and think big. Right. And I think that's one of the, you know, to your point of what I was talking about, you know, when I, when I was talking to you, to you about your podcast earlier, I think it's really important that we feed the local ecosystem with some of these, you know, big thinkers so that we can actually get everyone else to raise their eye line as well. And I can't, I can't stress enough the importance of Y Combinator in raising our eye line and actually getting us to think big. Right, it's 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 the first time we start to think really big, and by that stage we'd already run businesses and thought of ourselves as entrepreneurs. But I think you need someone to really push you to to, to ask the question, why not do something bigger? You know, um, some you know whoever it is that runs a government agency for startups just needs to run a simple ad, just rebrand re that Eldo Paso burrito ad, and just change it to why not think bigger, <laughs> you know, rather than why not have two, just make it why not think bigger. Because at the end of the day, um, you know, when we were in high school, it would have been high school, it would have been the first year of uni. 
I showed Andrew the front of this magazine and on the front of it were two dudes with Nerf guns. And they'd just, run a, they'd just won a contract with Microsoft. And those two guys on the front page were Mike Cannon-Brooks and Scott Farquhar, right? And this was like back in 2008, right? So I'm just saying, you know, um, it really exposed us to a group of people who made us think bigger and made us aim higher. Y Combinator is known for being a massive springboard for companies. They provide networks and advice to help founders learn from the very best and rapidly scale their business. If you make it successfully through the YC program and pitch at Demo Day, the chances of your business getting funding are significantly increased. And for GoOne, they had this vision going into YC of what they wanted to create in the learning space, and that evolved over their time in the program. And Vu's role from day one has largely been focused on sales and growth. It's what he enjoys doing, and it's a skill that he says isn't all that dissimilar from his role as a doctor. Even from the days where we went door-to-door selling websites as 17-year-olds, sales has always been my thing. And I don't mean sales in terms of, you know, being trying to be a slick salesperson. I love sales because it's the opportunity to engage with people and to communicate with people. Um, if I put my doctor's hat on, I've got a firm belief that good doctors should be good salespeople. Now, hear me out on this because that can be quite controversial. I can guarantee you that you have met good doctors and bad doctors. And your judgment of a good doctor or a bad doctor was not based on their skill level or on what they knew, but on how well they communicated with you, how they made you feel, and how they got you to buy into what they were communicating with you. Right now, it's cold and flu season, and given all the restrictions, we're not going to see as much cold and flu. But at this time of year, one of the best sales I could make is have someone like yourself come in and see me with a runny nose, a cough, and a sore throat. And in any other time, convince you that it's just a cold and that you don't need antibiotics because a viral infection will not respond to antibiotics and you walk out satisfied and happy with the counsel that I've given you with nothing other than the advice I've given you, right? So if you think about it, doctors have to diagnose a problem, have to convince the the patient of what that diagnosis is and have them buy into whatever treatment they're prescribing. So at the end of the day, I think think being able to sell has helped me become a better doctor, but also being a doctor has really helped me sell as well. So I've always been on the customer-facing side of things. I'm definitely not on the tech side of things. Um, But at the same time, I think it's because I love the opportunity to be able to A, get to know people, and B, learn how to communicate with people better as well. In those early days, how, how were you going about that process of getting the word out and acquiring customers, you know, when nobody knew who you were? Yeah, that's um. That's hard, right? And like, you know, I said to you, you know, that first time we got a you get a customer and you had nothing to do with it as a founder is a great feeling. Um, how do you build that? And it's part of the question, you know, is a broader question from that. And I think what we did was we ran, we, we love learning as you, as you know, from our business. Um, so we learned a lot from, from people who had been there and done that. So we had as many conversations as we could listen to as many podcasts as we could, um, and read as many books as we could. So, you know, as an example, we read Aaron Ross's Predictable Revenue really, really early on. Aaron Ross was the first uh, um, sales manager of Salesforce when they went, and he took him up to $100 million of revenue, right? Um, so, we that was one of the first approaches we took. We took a predictable revenue approach. And now when you get one of those emails saying to you, you know, hi, Bob, 
my name's Vu. I'm calling from, you know, workplace.com. I just wanted to check with you uh, who's the best person to talk to about spanners in your business, right? That email is automated now, but that approach was a really new approach 10 years ago. Now you get these automated emails that feel really personalized, but they're not. They're just coming from email marketing machines. For us really early on, it was about learning from those things and using those tools and testing them in a market here in Australia that hadn't adopted them as quickly. And that really helped us grow very, very quickly as well. But we had to experiment every single day on new ways to get traction, to to get in front of customers, to get leads and obviously close deals. But I think that top of the funnel is definitely the one thing that all startups really try and struggle or really try and address and really struggle with early on. And we just had to do it through lots of trial and error because, as I said to you before, the goalposts keep shifting. You know, um, what worked in 2019 won't work in 2020. So you've just got to stay up to date on what's happening, what other people are doing. The other advantage of the Y Combinator program is that it exposes startups to funding opportunities. And for Go One, that was certainly the case. But as we've discussed on the show before, who you raise money from matters. When you take money, you're bringing someone into your house and making them part of your family. You need to make sure that there is a good match and every startup has different things that they're looking for. Uh, I keep talking about why Combinator being sort of a transformational sort of um, period for us very early on and a very informative period. Why... YC ends at the end of three months in something called Demo Day. So I think we were told before we, like Andrew got up and did the pitch for us, you get two minutes to pitch. We're told that you have about half a trillion dollars worth of investors in that room. For us, there was Aston, Ashton Kutcher and Chameleon Air there in the, in the crowd as celebrity investors. But there is a bucket load of money there out there for investment. So for us, you know, start going through the Y Combinator route, investment was one of the things that you are desensitized to very early on, right? To know that that's an avenue for growth. But you're also told that you're also you also learn very quickly that it's it's not there for for to establish yourself or to survive, it's there for growth. And I come back to that 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 term growth. So, you know, the best form of the best form of investment is revenue. I'm always going to go back to that, right? Um, there are some great companies in Australia that I know of who have, you know, single-digit shares between their founders. They don't have a single-dollar investment, and they've scaled to become to have multi, you know, probably one, two, three hundred million dollar valuations, and haven't raised a single dollar. But the thing that it comes back to is that if you do take on money, it's for growth, and we've always had that on that early on, right? It's to accelerate something that we couldn't achieve ourselves. If we can achieve it ourselves, great. There's no point taking on money because we dilute ourselves further. But if we do bring on investment investors, to your point, it's not just about the dollars they bring; it's about the uh, benefits they bring in terms of either the you know how they can help improve or contribute to your strategy beyond those dollars. Because I think. You know, if you, and and please, I I hope people listening to this take this the right way. If you're a good enough company with with the good enough foundations, you'll be able to find money quite easily. The question is, will you be able to find the investors who will be able to contribute value beyond just the dollars that they give you? And so from my perspective, it's been about choosing the right people before it's been about choosing the dollars, if that makes sense. We had really big checks offered to us really early on. But they came with conditions of moving to where they were 
And we wanted to stay in Australia. We wanted to stay as an Australian startup. Um, so we tried to choose investors who were a lot more friendly, who who trusted in the vision of what we wanted to achieve and that we could we could grow what we wanted to be from right here in Australia, which is why we didn't just take a mixture of Australian money, but also overseas money as well, which has been really, really important because we need those those channels to be able to grow and expand into other regions. And after this short break, Go One scales globally. But how do you actually deal with culture in a global startup? As GoOne gained market traction, the company started to look at ways to expand their team. They're a B2B company, and generally the view is that B2B businesses should have someone on the ground in key markets. But when you're just getting started, you may not have access to the talent to make opening an international office work. You also might struggle to manage the first few global hires. But for GoOne, they decided to keep those initial staff in Australia, so they could manage the team directly for as long as possible. Anyone that, like, I mean, I think everyone will know that if they if they're eventually going to want to go overseas or not. You know, for us, we've always we we, our, like I said to you, thinking big. We we knew we wanted to be a global company. We wanted to be it. You know, and so as a result of that, it wasn't a matter of do we go overseas. It's actually a matter of when. And so to your question of of kind of when did we think about that, we'd always planned to go overseas. But understanding when to go overseas was quite difficult. So one of the biggest things is how do you enter a new market if you haven't actually got establishment in your own market where you've got a foothold? Um, where you know the US is for us, it's 25 times bigger across every single vertical industry and market segment, right? It's huge. It's the Wild West. But the flip side of it is our understanding of that market is was not anywhere near as strong as our understanding of our own backyards. So what our back so by operating in Australia and establishing ourselves in Australia until we hit that sort of moment where we go, we've got something here. Like remember I said to you just before, one of the eureka moments for me was when we realized we could we, we made a sale without any of our involvement. That's a pretty important ingredient to sell overseas or to scale your business, you know. And so for us it was about going there's two things. It's it's it was about balancing opportunity. So there were some great opportunities with great customers that came with expanding overseas. But I think the second part of it is knowing that we had the maturity in our business to be able to support customers overseas as well. Because there's always a danger of spreading yourself too thin um, and that's always a problem. And, and so when, when did that occur for you? Uh, so our first proper foray, and I'll, and I'll be honest with you, we, 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 we experimented a few different times. And, and any, any, most companies that sell B2B will tell, initially will tell you, all I need to do is find a fantastic sales manager, get them to build up a great sales team, and they'll kill it, right? And the answer is no. As founders, you need to be on the ground and you need to shift your whole center of gravity, right? So for us, we spent plenty of time overseas. You know, we were up until what happened, uh, what, what's happened more recently, um, we, we, we've been in the US every two weeks. One of us is in the US every two weeks, you know, up until recent travel restrictions. So even though we're an Australian company, we shifted our entire sort of 
center of gravity and focus to be on those regions. Because if it's 25 times bigger in the US, you got to make sure your bet is the equivalent as well, right? It's proportional. You can't just kind of go in half-assed. But as a result of that, it also meant that we had to experiment to know when was the right time. So to your question, it was probably it was it probably wasn't until two or three years after we started. So it wasn't probably until 2017, 18 that we really started looking at the US because we felt we had the right stability and traction here in Australia. And we did a whole bunch of different experiments in trying to, you know, hiring salespeople there, working out where we want to set up, tried and failed on a lot of different fronts. But the biggest thing for me was, and one of the biggest teachings that we got out of it. And it was actually from a YC partner who actually said, hey guys, you know, here's my advice. Um, a guy named Steli and Steli founded a CRM called Close.io. Um, and, and a lot of people listening to this may have come across Close.io. Um, and Steli said, if you want to sell into an overseas market, sell from your mothership first if you can. So we did that. So uh, end of 2018, start of 2019, we had four salespeople whose job it was to do a graveyard shift and sell into the West Coast of the US. And what that meant is that we could iterate so much faster because they could turn around and talk to our customer success and our development teams and our product management teams and really close that feedback loop faster for new customers in the US so that we could take some of those learnings and reapply them to our business strategy faster rather than waiting for this sort of time loop of time zones aligning and these meetings are occurring. And then as a result of that, we had enough confidence, understanding, and of a product approach that we could actually approach the US market, set up a team there, bring some of those guys who actually sold from Australia into the US early, bring them over to the US to support our new, new US guys. And we actually had the luxury of bringing everyone from the US who was onboarded at any point in time to Australia and really indoctrinating them into our company and our company culture for a month before they went back to the US and did it. And you'll see that's the same approach that's, that was done by companies like HubSpot um, and large software companies all over the world in terms of selling from the mothership and then, uh, and then bringing a landing party across. You know, I wish, I, I wish we found that out in 2017, 18, but um, through trial and error and coming across some great advice, I think we found the right approach. Go One now has offices in Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, Perth, Vietnam, Malaysia, the US, and even South Africa. They have more than 200 staff and have recently closed their Series C round of 40 million US dollars, bringing their total raised to more than 80 million. But when you've got a big global startup, what are some of the challenges you face when running a business across different countries and different cultures? It's funny, like a lot of the learnings we've had have actually meant that we've been able to deal with change in terms of restrictions on travel and that sort of stuff really, really easily. I think the biggest challenge, I think, you know, it's a very, very high level concept, but how do you maintain a comp- an organizational culture across different cultures and different offices where physical distance is between you all, if that makes sense? Like, so, you know, for us, when I talk about the fact that we brought staff across here to work from here for a month, it's about one of our biggest exports as a company is actually our culture. And I think that's really important. And so not only, so we, we, up until two months ago, we've had exchanges occurring on a regular basis where we'd send people from here, from, from, from Australia to one of our offices overseas and bring people from our overseas offices to here. So I think one of the biggest challenges has always been how do you maintain a company culture and a company identity? Um, it too, it's too easy for 
for for for an office to go rogue and establish their own sort of way of working which which is great you want people to own have ownership over what they do but you also want to make sure that there's alignment across what you do so for the last four years every friday we do a link up between every office in in, in around the globe right um and we have presentations that are done that are led so those friday calls uh, are led by a different office every single week so making sure that you know we, we call it our our one team value of how do we make sure that we make everyone feel they're part of one team despite being in one of our 10 different offices it's a challenge that we're continually trying to trying to meet um but it's one i think it's the biggest thing that you get in, in, the, in the early days though it's also closing that feedback loop I guarantee you there are a whole bunch of people that you'll have spoken to where you'll have a satellite sales office trying to get in touch with the support or dev teams and that feedback loop is weeks as opposed to hours. COVID-19 has seen many industries decimated, but online learning is soaring. So I was very keen to ask Fu what kind of tangible impact COVID has had on Go One. So I want to make sure I say this right because we've we've been one of the companies that have, you know, with touch wood, we've been fortunate enough to see demand for our product go up, right, as a result of what's happening because, you know, um, despite all the tragedy that has occurred with COVID-19 and how, how lucky we are in Australia to have gotten through as we have, um, it's been a massive catalyzer for change. Um, and I say catalyst for change because of the fact that there were changes that were going to occur anyway. They occurred in weeks instead of years. And, and I'm not joking when I say that sort of, that sort of um, quantum. Um, we don't service universities, but I was talking to a university recently and they said, if you asked any academic how long it would take for a university to move to completely online, they would have said four to five years. In reality, it took them two weeks. And for us, we're seeing rapid adoption of what we're doing. Now, that's not necessarily meaning that customers have budget, right? But it means that they have a need for us. And so, one of the things that we're seeing is that, you know, Italy in March, Italy has never been in our top 10 countries in the world of consuming Go One. They came fourth in March because of the lockdowns they implemented during March. Um, on Good Friday, we implemented a uh, some free training for Singaporean workers uh, with NTUC, which is the large union in Singapore. And in the course of two weeks, we had 65,000 Singaporeans self-sign up to do learning through GoOne. You know, and we don't service B to B to C. Well, you know, we did this in partnership with the union. But we had 65,000 people individually sign up. And it's like, okay, yeah, that's really cool. You know, we had 2.5% of Singapore's working population sign up to our learning in two weeks. So the demand is there. But you know what's even cooler? They've done almost 10 million minutes of learning in that period of time, which may not sound like sound great, that great, but that means that each average worker has done at least two to three hours of learning through Go One in the last few weeks, which is quite exceptional. And so from, from our point of view, we know that right now there is a thirst for learning. You know, there's this concept of earn or learn, and there's this opportunity right now for people to upskill and still be productive. So we've been very fortunate in what's happening, um, and we're trying our best to make sure that we can provide our services as much as possible while we are, um, even if it means it doesn't necessarily contribute that much to our bottom line because of the fact that we know that people don't have budget. 
as as a company that focuses on B2B transactions, um, I'm sure that you, you know, as a founding team probably had many discussions around sort of like pricing of your offering. Do you have any advice for um, for other businesses that, you know, are struggling to get their pricing right? And, you know, is there such a thing as the right price for your product? So, Blue Ocean Strategy, Google images it when you get a chance and it's just a really simple sort of diagram, but it's actually a great book. Um, Blue Ocean Strategy talks about the blue ocean and the red ocean, right? The red ocean is red because it's full of blood. It's you and your 5,000 other competitors, right? So for us, when we started out, we were what's called an LMS or a learning management system. And in 2015, we were awarded the best new LMS of over 600 out there. And instead of being really happy with that award, we said, holy cows, there's 600 of us out there. And that really taught us that that was a red ocean. Your blue ocean is blue because it's just you swimming in it. And one of the key things about Blue Ocean Strategy is the fact that, how, you know, often in Red Ocean, you, you, you have, you, the customer has to have a choice of either differentiation or low cost. They can't get both, right? Whereas Blue Ocean Strategy talks about being able to provide people differentiation and low cost, right? That idea of, you know, if I told you 20 years ago that you could have every song in the world for 10 bucks a month, you'd sit there and go, nah, it's not possible. I could either buy 50,000 CDs or make do with the songs that I, I can buy or afford to buy, right? And so something like Spotify kind of cuts through that. Not only are they able to provide customers with something that is significant value, but the flip side of it is that they're pricing it at a price point, which obviously hopefully makes them money as well or else they wouldn't exist as a business. So I think one of the things is um, it's, it's about trying to make sure that you're not trying to force customers into a value cost trade-off for your product if you have that, those points of difference where you're providing them value at the same time as um, providing them with that different dif- differentiation. So, you know, it's like, oh, well, you're charging too, much, too, too little for your subscription. And I'm sitting there going, well, actually, it depends. If our customers can afford it, and if more customers can afford it and we can make money off it, then let's do it that way because our goal is to be able to try to capture as many people as possible and still be a high-growth, profitable company. So at the end of the day, it's very, very important to make sure that we do look at margins, we do look at profit, et cetera. But at the end of the day, you don't want to be your pricing being the reason that your growth has been stymied, right? So for me, I always look at it going, how do you price your product in a way that what your differentiators are is not a value cost trade-off. With everything that, that you've achieved so far um, as, as a business, so many staff, global company, but also it sounds like a, a long road ahead of like what you still want to achieve. How do you feel? It's a great question. And I, I really love that you asked that question because, it's, because, because I'm, I'm going to share with you. That's the question I ask any staff member that I run into is how are you feeling? How do you feel? Right? So, so thank you for asking that question. I appreciate it because I know how much it means to people who get asked it uh, when I ask it to people. I, uh, if I can be honest with you, I feel that this, this, it's, 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 it's a mixed bag. Um, it, sometimes I feel really overwhelmed. And I feel overwhelmed because I feel like there's an opportunity here to capture. And, you know, it's ours to lose, if that makes sense. And sometimes that mindset can re- be really debilitating. But on the flip side, I'm ecstatic because I have the opportunities that very few people in this world will get the opportunity to be able to do. 
And so finding that balance between that sort of anxiousness of wanting to make the most of the opportunities that are in front of you, but also that excitement of the opportunities that are ahead is, is a really mixed bag. What I'm really thankful for though, is that I get to run this company with my best mates and I have some really great co-founders. And so for myself personally, I admire anyone who is a solo founder because I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you today about Go One if I was doing this alone. There's no way we would have achieved the things that we've done nor achieved the things we'll do in the future if we didn't have a team of founders who, you ask me what I want to do in five years' time, and this is my honest-to-God answer to you, I'll scrub toilets if I have to as long as I'm still working with these guys. That is my honest answer because I know that regardless of what we are doing in five years' time, these are the people I want to work with and these are the people that we'll be able to achieve something great with. Building a Unicorn is a Lawson Media production. You can find out more about the show at our website, buildingaunicorn.com. This episode was hosted and scripted by me, Christopher Lawson, mixing and mastering by James Parkinson. Nick Buchanan composed our theme track, and Andrew Millist designed our artwork. If you value the conversations that you're hearing on this show, then jump into Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. It really helps. But if you don't have Apple Podcasts, it doesn't matter. Just jump onto social media and follow us on Facebook or Twitter. Just search for Build a Unicorn. And if you want to own your very own piece of Building a Unicorn merchandise, head across to podmerch.co. We've got t-shirts, we've got stickers, we've got hoodies, and they are still shipping despite the COVID-19 crisis. So that's podmerch.co. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Thanks for listening.